listening to the Exile Hour, hosted by Kayla Jackson Dills and Evan Phillips. We hope you enjoy the show wherever you are in the world time zones. Remember, be safe, be vigilant, and keep listening. The FBI and DHS Fusion Centers run a global gang stalking program, which is designed to harass, intimidate, and break down targeted individuals. Welcome to the Exile Hour. I'm Caleb Jackson Dills. Yeah, and this is Evan Philip Lipson. Today on the Exile Hour, we've got Brian Lewis Saunders, who's primarily known for doing daily self-portraits. He's done at least one a day since 1995, probably somewhere around 12,000 self-portraits. Kind of came to prominence from a series that he did that was titled Under the Influence, in which he started taking different drugs each day, um, sometimes a combination of drugs, a sort of drug cocktail. Or... Uh... Some the drugs that he chose were were very interesting because a lot of them aren't popular drugs like huffing glue or uh, computer duster, morphine, uh, carbon monoxide. A lot of a lot of uh, pharmaceutical drugs as well. Yeah, just a lot of pills, stuff that people would bring him. He had a sort of open solicitation to uh, friends or uh, people would send him stuff in the mail. So this kind of went viral. And uh, people started checking out other series. uh, And then he's also been doing uh, a lot of performances over the years. Uh, Moved to China for a while. Taught himself Mandarin. um, And had this, what he sort of describes as a delusion of grandeur. In which he got the idea that he'd moved to China. And become a famous stand-up comedian. Chinese stand-up comedian. Uh, Upon... Getting to China, he quickly realized that stand-up comedy doesn't really exist there. Um, <laughs> so had sort of a deflating fall from grace and uh, moved back to the States uh, in Johnson City, Tennessee, and came up with the idea that uh, since there's so many comedians in the U.S., uh, there would be so much competition that he would he would create his own uh, new genre called stand-up tragedy in which he uh, would attempt to make people cry or have uh, all kinds of uh, negative or traumatic emotions in public. The idea initially seems kind of insane to uh, learn Mandarin and move to China to start your stand-up career. But upon reflection of that idea, it's, it's kind of fucking genius. Like if they did have a club system when he started going to China, um, the thought process of an American in a Chinese city where there are no white people, like, you're going to excel. The premise is already hilarious. It's a, it's a lot a less batshit insane than you'd think it would be to uh, to move to fucking China. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe the, uh, the insane part is not really looking into whether or not this existed before you make the move. But uh, I guess that's open for debate. Um, other things that he's been involved with uh include some really interesting kind of isolated sensory deprivation experiments um often lasting for the duration of uh, 30 days or a month such as going blind for a month um being deaf um what are some other ones uh temperature seeing how temperature control there was an arousal one where he would um uh try and draw these self his self portraits at, during different uh, scaled phases of, of arousal, even uh, even drawing himself 
mid orgasm. Um, Brian was uh, diagnosed as having antisocial personality disorder as a child. Uh, then later as a teen, he was diagnosed as borderline uh, schizotypal as a young adult. And uh, as an adult, he was diagnosed as being a paranoid schizophrenic. All right. Uh, let's get Brian on the horn. Hello. Good evening, Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, how's it going? Moderately well. Yeah, pretty well. How's the world up well, there? Well, if I, if I hear whistling, like a whistle or a dog barking for 10 minutes straight, I've got to go check on my neighbor. She's falling down and can't get up, and uh, I'll take you with me. All right, please do. Uh, yeah, I don't mind hearing that at all. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, the, her, she has a dog, a shit zoo, and um, if she falls on her back, the dog drops different toys on her crotch trying to get her up. But if she falls face down and can't get up, the dog gets this big, huge stuffed animal in its mouth and then just rams her in the ass as hard as he can. Trying to shake her up, get her up off the floor. Fortunately, it's the Shih Tzu, so it can't be that hard. Yeah. Yeah, come to think of it, I haven't seen any canines featured in any of your drawings. I did a drawing of her laying in the doorway, and the dog just like real nervous looking around, and another neighbor trying to pick her up. And I've done one, but I I did another one of the other dog, uh, Habu, but I didn't share that picture. Did you have dogs growing up? Well, I I had one uh, German Shepherd, a white purebred German Shepherd, and um, it was like a puppy and everything like that, but it got mean. They they can do that? Um, So where where we are up to date... um... To get it straight, uh, you've been known for primarily doing these self-portraits since 1995, doing at least one every day. Uh, How many self-portraits would you estimate that you've done in total thus far? Well, I haven't uh, scanned in my last two books, so I don't exactly know what number I'm on. I'm on, I've got to be over 12,000. The last one I had numbered was 11,797. And so, and I've done two, I've got two books to scan in and I'm almost done with another, a third book. That's definitely more than one a day. How much, how many do you average a day? Well, I think it only averages to like one and a half or something. Or it's, Some days I'll do, I have been known to do like nine or 10 or something in a day. But then there's been times where when I was doing um, performing uh, where I would, just do one a day like you know and just i kept it going but i was more like touring or something like that and not really doing too much but if i went like somewhere else like overseas or something i would do more than one a day because things were exciting you know you're doing thousands and thousands of these portraits every day in addition to everything else and then like all any when when you die you know like people will just look at the first one and the last one oh yeah and, uh, <laughs> That's probably not true, but no, I have thought about that before. Though I think, well, I think they're gonna go in the trash when I die. Really? Well, I mean, I won't be here to stop anything. Sure, but you know, like Kafka asked his best friend to destroy all his writings, but he—I think he knew that his friend wouldn't do that. Well, well, uh, 
with the self-portraits, though, I think people don't. I don't think people really, they can't see them the way I see them because I've, it's about making them. It's not like a, it's about what I can do with them afterwards and while I'm doing them and stuff. And so I think people, they just look at it like it's a regular, each one, like it's just a regular picture, but it's not. It's like a whole nother world to me. But how do I teach people to see it that way? It's, it's a real challenge. I mean, it's it, what appears before you is this this archive within this this framework and this space of these images, which appear to be you know within the the idiom of self portraiture. Uh, so people, are, of course, are going to assume that it's the same as all other self. It's just like a regular self portrait. Yeah, it's just each one is a regular self portrait, but doing it every day is like totally different because you're. You're doing it like like the element of time is totally different. Like normally a person doing a, por- a self-portrait, they would spend hours and hours and hours in front of a mirror just accumulating all these moments of like gazing at themselves. But doing it every day, you change that time. And you can actually either expand on it and collaborate with yourself for like 15 years ago, or you can do one in like five seconds and just capture like one little bit of panic or something like that. But then other times there's, it's like when, if I'm say I'm like a negative seven arousal, but I can start drawing. And then by the time I'm done with that, no, like regular, like physical arousal, like I'm almost like three steps away from falling asleep. But then while I'm drawing, I can like increase my arousal by the time I'm, you know, done with the picture, I will be like a positive three or something like that. Same with my valence, like my mood or not my mood, but my, uh, my feeling at the time of making it, like, say I'm kind of like down in the dumps or something, you know, and then you draw on the picture. And then by the time you're done with the picture, you could do like a cartoon, make some, make it lighter, you know, like humorous. And then by the time you're done with the picture, you're laughing and you've like totally elevated your mood. But when someone else looks at that picture, they're not going to see that process, that that transformation that took place on that page. They're only going to see like, oh, this one was like a cartoon. This one was like a, you know, where he's jumping up and down. You know what I mean? Like a blurry picture or something. They're not, I don't think people, I don't, I don't know how people, you can teach people to see unless they do it themselves like every day. Say you're in a bad mood. Is it hard to uh, force yourself to, paint a self-portrait or is it easier it's it's the same i would think the exact same if i was in a good mood if i had like diarrhea is the same as having uh elation or something Uh, maybe if i'm elated because i'm in a like seeing a stand-up comic or something it might not you know because there's other people around or something like that so i might not be able to have the same amount of attention in that type of relation but all of the feelings I I don't know it's like it's like when I do them too and it's hard to tell from just looking at them I'll start the picture almost always I'll start the picture with some type of physical feeling inside my body but then that physical feeling like say I have like a stiffness in my neck or something I'll make some stiff lines where my neck is and so then while I'm doing it, I can decide, like, 
do I want to like relieve that stress and, you know, change it? It's like a way of um, interacting with your experience. So you can like manipulate your feelings as they happen in real time. But then at the same time you're doing that, you come to this point where you realize that these feelings, it's like if, say I, okay, I scan all my pictures in the computer and I go through and I pick every happy picture or every sad picture I've scanned in and I put them in a folder. Well, they're not going to look the same at all. But in language, we have the word sadness. And so when you just, when you're looking for sadness pictures, you can find them all day long. But when you go and look at each individual sadness picture, there's like a whole big, huge range of like uh, feeling, feelings. And then and they, you can't just say like, oh, this one's, well, I kind of don't know how to explain it. But the, what I've come to find out is that the physical feelings are what trigger the labeling of the condition. So that way, it's like the the physical feelings are what makes you decide what you're, what emotion you're having. I don't think this is revolutionary thinking or anything because William James, I, I believe this philosopher a long time ago said something about how like if you're you're running and you know some animal's chasing you or something and you're running and then you you say like oh I'm afraid of that animal. But what it is, you're not really running because you're afraid of that animal. You're saying you're afraid because your heartbeat is like going crazy and your, you know, your arousal and all these physical feelings. Are, it's like the physical feelings, the pattern of physical feelings creates a label that we call an emotion. Right. I think it's been measured where people's response time i mean the thought to to make a motion to to say hey i'm i'm going to move my finger actually occurs within an infinite infinitesimal period of time after the the event takes place so the mechanism leads the body or we could say instinct leads intuition or something or maybe uh, or not it leads intellect you know so like this was a Schopenhauer idea like that uh, intellect was an outgrowth of instinct I don't know but that that sounds real similar uh-huh that sounds real similar to what I think because it's like a pattern that you create in your brain that, that triggers this label it's like instantaneous like once these motor neurons fire or once these like sensory you know uh neurons fire in this pattern way or something, then you just call it what that is. Like what you've been taught culturally, maybe is that's what that feeling is or something. But I mean, I, I would think if you learn a whole lot of different words for different emotions, then if you increase your vocabulary of emotional words, you would be able to, you'd be a lot healthier, I think, emotionally, because you can define things better. You wouldn't just only if you're only limited to like sad, depressed, gloomy or something, then you you know, every time something something happens, you're just like, Oh god, I'm depressed or I'm sad or I'm gloomy. You're like real limited. So whenever you experience some type of physical feelings, they put you in that that limited labeling system, maybe. I don't know. But I, I thought of these things, but I, I've never taken the time to go and learn a whole bunch of emotional words and see if it helps. It's really similar to color. You know, uh, there's different cultures that don't have words for specific colors, and uh, or they have more colors than we do. So 
they end up actually uh, using utilizing those colors more in their artwork. Oh wow! Yeah, I read something about there's a certain tribe that exists in the Amazon, and they're surrounded by this world of green, this lush green that exists in the Amazon, and so many different shades of that that they've developed. I don't know how many. Uh, maybe hundreds of different words for all, for all the to designate all the different shades of green, but if you take them into a different environment uh, where there's all these new colors that they've never been exposed to or haven't been exposed to for generations, they can't see them. They're actually invisible to them. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's entirely true, but uh, oh wow, yeah. But so it's like you limit when you. And, and I'm interested in this because I know that you do a lot of uh, sensory limitation or, or like specific sensory deprivation, um, focusing on different different senses. And it's like, um, uh, yeah, I guess the assumption is usually when you when you sort of deafen or mute one sense, uh, that it increases another. Well, you started. So one thing that you did, you went blind for a month, and then you were using a. Uh, what do you call it? echolocation? Echolocation is that what it's called? Yeah, with the grunting. Uh huh. Yeah, when I was deaf for a month, when I tried to be deaf for a month, I ended up hallucinating for ten days straight. It was like a real visual month. And then when I was blind for a month, it was like it, it started becoming an audio month. And then when I did um, thermoregulation month, which is like your body temperature controlling your body temperature uh that turned into a breathing month and next one i'll probably do is probably a breathing month and i don't know i don't know what that'll do it might make me it might be more connected back to temperature i'm not sure i have no clue what would be the parameters of breathing month i don't know i just start stuff you know like hyperventilate and draw or you know do cardio and draw or uh, hold my breath and draw or compare holding my breath to hyperventilating. I'll just start messing with breathing and then see. And then there's like different exercises. But for some some reason, maybe you guys know about this. Uh, there's these things that people do called um, Reikian breath exercises. Have yeah, you heard of this? Yeah, I had somebody do this. Yeah, I'm familiar once. with that. Uh, I don't really know anything about it except uh, I read the first I got to read the first six chapters of John Duncan's um, biography. And there's one chapter where he explains like what, how you do it. And I was like, Oh, wow. So I'd asked him before, like more than, more than once in emails and messages and stuff. Like, how do you do it? He would never say. And then I was like, Holy shit, this is cool. Cause it tells you how to do it. But every time and he says it in the book and also uh, the people that I've met, that say, do it, never do it alone. That it's like dangerous and all this stuff. But I think, how in the world, like, what about it is dangerous? Why couldn't I just do that by myself? I don't understand. What's what's the risk? Like maybe create some feedback loop of energy or something like that's the concept. Is like, it like a spiritual element? Like, are they worried that you're going to, like, open a portal with your mind? I, I don't know. Oh, uh, I don't I don't know. This was just an ex-girlfriend's mother that did this to me. But she was supposedly some Reiki master and, and – uh, I, I understood it as something like, you know, through the it was she using her hands without any physical contact. That might have been a little strange with the girlfriend around, but um, you know, just sort of like ho- hovering over my my stomach, which I was having like problems with at the time, and uh, and it, the I think the idea was like uh, some transfer of energy. So maybe when you, one can't transfer energy 
back into themselves. Maybe that's the issue or something. Oh, well, I don't really believe in that type of stuff, really, I don't think. Um, I was saying what struck me initially was, of course, all these different aesthetic approaches and styles. And uh, this this is something that you don't see often. I mean, I think it's sort of... It certainly in a modern sense has been a push towards a kind of uh, marketing, but I was wondering if you think this sort of thing of avoiding a singular artistic style or aesthetic approach uh, in some way helps to undermine the entrepreneurial goal and effort to market artistic media. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think about this quite a bit because it's all like like the style, it's all about branding and identification so people can like – know who you are and you keep doing it and then people get pissed if you like change your style and stuff like that maybe not so much now i think at least in music people people have more freedom and stuff to um deviate from their you know their latest album they can advance and change into it to do something else i think but it, it to is, a certain degree but i think it's also limited in, in music but it's i think that that the whole purpose of art is to advance yourself or advance the group or like society or something. And I don't think that like, if you, if you commit yourself to one style and you only limit yourself to seeing everything one way, it's, it, it goes against advancement. So it's like, it defeats the whole purpose of art. Really. Maybe if it's just the average audience that they, they expect you to do something or once you gain that following from doing one thing, those people only want that thing. It's very frustrating. Well, yeah, I can see that because of the drug pictures. That's what everybody knows me for and likes. But then I used to get really frustrated about that because like every every year the drug pictures would go viral on some other website or blog or something. And then I would get all this attention again after I would do other cool stuff. And so it, was, it did get kind of frustrating. But then later on after... I don't know, seven years of that, It start, I started seeing how that would trigger people to find out about the other stuff. And, so, and, and I would start seeing more and more comments of people saying like, oh, well, if you think that's cool, you should check this out. He's doing this right now. Or if you think that's cool, oh, he did this. And so then it's, I started seeing how it was like a gateway for other people to... Um, the gateway drug portraits. Yeah, pretty much. And, and then people were... Would, uh, I got like a lot of emails and fan mail and stuff like that from people about totally other things. And then um, finally, uh, colleges, like college students, high school students would start, you know, wanting to interview me for their papers and stuff, but not even about the drug pictures. But the drug pictures are always the first thing, like how they come to find out about it. But then once they found out about that, then they would find out about the other self-portraits and the spoken word stuff and the albums and different things. So, and the sensory experiments and stuff like that. But with the marketing and everything, I just don't, I've never wanted to be any part of that at all. I have tried, I'll try anything. And I was with one gallery in Israel for a little while, had two shows with them and stuff, but the people the collectors and all this type of stuff. I just, I just didn't like it. It it was, it was ignorant. And it was like, like, I couldn't believe, like I, I was probably 40, 45 years old. And I always thought like if someone owned an art gallery, they would have like gone to college and like 
went to a good school or something and like studied art or studied business or like studied art history or something to open an art gallery. But it doesn't work like that. If you, if you have money, you can do whatever you want. So you can have money, open up an art gallery and then peer pressure your rich friends to buy stuff and not know anything about art, not know anything about business. No credentials or expertise required. Yeah, there, you, you don't need anything. It was kind of shocking to me. And, and it seems silly to think about. Like you think, oh, yeah, well, if you have money, you can do whatever you want. But I didn't never really know it. Like it wasn't an epiphany until I was involved in it. And then it was just like, well, they, they ruin your art. Really, they they can physically ruin your art because of ignorance and stuff. I could go on. I could do a whole podcast about how it is. But and I still I'm not going to I tell people like I don't let that experience uh, ruin me or limit my experience. Like other galleries, the people might be more informed or more educated or something like that. But um, and I would try it again, maybe if under the right circumstances and stuff. It's always like a learning experience. But. I, I just don't really believe believe in that. I would rather people know the art that I did than know my name or something like that, you know? Like, no. I would rather my, instead of making art for, like, wealthy people and healthy people, I would rather sick young people know about my art. And there's, like, a lot of things that are against the... I guess the art world and art history and everything, you know. I'm not trying to be a bummer on the show. But we ain't seen nothing yet. We can go wherever we want to go. That's the joy of the podcast. Um, it's it's actually funny that you say that because there's like a thought process I have with art and like where it's went to to where I think I think um, be it music or film or um, anything, people really care about this idea of the artist almost more than the product that's created. Now, I don't know why that. It, maybe it's social media. Maybe it's um, maybe it's just an, it's an easier like if you're if you run an art gallery, I guess it's probably easier to sell art if you can be like, oh look, this guy made it and give this whole history of the person. You know, it's really kind of disgusting to me. Yeah. Like the celebrity factor or something. Yeah, completely. Well, it's like what was once kind of spoken with some degree of irony, uh, you know, throwing around these terms like uh, personal branding and so forth is now like de rigueur. I mean, people can say this without some degree of like disgust or horror. <laughs> um, it's it's perfectly commonplace. So it's like the uh, like money actually is the aesthetic or mark marketing where it's reduced down to just the uh the brand and the logo and the the image is solely i mean i think that's 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 all been the um inevitable outcome of of this this whole process of effort the effort to market artistic meaning yeah i think that art used to be for thousands of years maybe millions of years i think it used to be done for the purpose of passing knowledge across spans of time and and now that's broken now it's just more like entertainment like for it's connect people uh, i really i don't really talk about this type of stuff too much but i think about it a whole lot i really think about it because i don't want like i never wanted to have my pictures be in like some rich 
guy's storage unit hiding from his wife so his wife doesn't know he paid too much for it or ha- have it in some corporate corporate vault you know or something like that but that's what that's what happens and um institutions there's one institution that owns some of my art uh in um harlem with two a's in uh the netherlands not new york but harlem in the netherlands and uh they put on an exhibit with me and this guy willem van genk who was a uh, he's labeled as a outsider like mentally ill artist in the netherlands and van gogh it was the three of us and it was called the mock bar men's i don't know what that exhibit i don't really know what that means i don't think the google translation was really that accurate and stuff but then they wanted to buy three of my pictures and I had done three um I took a test that was kind of like the ink blot test I, I I gave it to myself but instead of like saying like writing down what I saw in the ink blots I painted more details on the ink blots and it was a european uh, version of the ink blot test and so I thought what well, is the perfect you know they want to have some of my art or whatever I'll sell them these three things and they they couldn't afford very much it wasn't like some big money thing it, it helped me get some food for like a month or two or something like that but it seemed like well this is a good home because people can come in and then they can see exactly what I see in this type of psycho it was like a psychological uh, museum of psychology type of place so i felt a lot better about it i don't know about a lot of other institutions really uh, a lot of galleries and stuff they when at one time when i was real young I, yeah museums feel terrible to me now yeah well there's been yeah i, I there's still some good exhibits that i see but they're always so far apart and i don't really get to go see them being here in Tennessee that's the only thing I miss about being in Johnson City but they um one time when I was really young I practiced for two weeks in my grandmother's garage opening up two suitcases full of drawings and laying them out on in a specific order on the ground as fast as possible and then I, I got it down to like seven minutes or something I could lay out like 400 drawings or something like really really good and uh I went to New York with these two suitcases of drawings and I and I'd for like months while I was uh while class was in session I'd um I would look at like my mother got me Art in America subscription and Art Forum International subscription to these magazines and so I would like see like oh I like that artist or that's a cool exhibit and I would look and see what gallery it was in New York so I had a list of these galleries and so then I practiced laying out all these pictures so I could just go in there set up my exhibit like super fast and then wham these people real hard with all my cool drawings and everything and then I get to New York and um go to these and these galleries were like you could not even walk in like a person from the street could not even walk in you had to have like an appointment or get buzzed in and so i i could say i was a delivery like at postmasters i said i was a delivery person and then they buzzed me in and then i went upstairs there was no one to meet me and i laid out all these drawings well they didn't even come out and look at my drawings and then uh i went to find them in the back room and I said, excuse me, I've got like all these drawings out here I'd like you to look at. And the lady looked up from her phone and she was like, I don't have time for this shit. It's never even would come out and look at them. And then at, and then at Metro Pictures, I love 
of Metro Pictures, I see, see like, oh, Jim Shaw's got exhibit Metro Pictures, Mike Kelly, Metro Pictures, you know, Cindy Sherman, Metro, all these people that like are like kind of influential or at least really super inspiring to me. I was like, oh, I'm going to go there. And there was like a sign on the door that said, we're closed. And uh, I only had two days in New York that I could do. And uh, the sign said, we're closed. But if you want to come, we're setting up and we're installing an exhibit. But if you want to come in and say hi, come on in. So I just went on in, set up all, I started setting up all my drawings. And then uh, a woman came out from the back and she said, oh, are you? Uh, so-and-so so-and-so's assistant and I was like yep and I just kept laying out my drawings real quick and, and then this lady would look started looking at my drawings and she's like uh-uh nope mm-mm, nope nope and then she just started picking up all my pictures she was picking them up faster than I was uh, putting them down and I practiced for two weeks putting them down and then I was afraid she was gonna like fuck up the order and so then i just like started picking them up and everything like that and then uh but i went into one gallery i forget which one it was might have been called jason born in misa or something like this and uh they i started laying out my well i go in to lay out my drawings and they had a there was no art on the walls at all and there was like this utility closet and all of the people's paintings were in this utility closet and then there was like a rich person in there and then another uh, in the gallery person was like pulling paintings out of this utility closet the whole place was empty except for this utility closet and they were pulling out and like oh this artist this one this so and so so and so they're real hot this one right here is real hot they're young and they were like saying oh this person's so young and so hot and then they would pull out another painting it didn't matter who it was, they were young and hot. And then the next one is pulling out, young and hot. And they were just like leaning them up against the wall. This person was just like not interested. And I was like, what the fuck? It was like, it was like soul crushing to see that type of thing. Young and hot. The only two important things uh, with art is if it's young and if it's hot. That's all I care about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These places are like, it's like a giant uh, aestheticized sarcophagus. It's a tomb. It's this is where, uh, where the shit goes to die. Well, I mean, the people survive. People make money selling stuff to survive the well and everything and uh, get to do their art and stuff. But I just don't, I don't, my personality type, I put it on my genetics. I just can't, uh, I don't know how you, I don't know how you can be a human being and be in that. <laughs> Oh God, I feel like I'm a bummer or something, but I just don't know how to do it. I just, it's, it's ridiculous. No, me either. That's uh, I, I don't understand. I don't understand why it works this way or who even enjoys this. Yeah. And, and money is like an incredible motivator. Like it's like a motivational tool. If you pay $1 for a cause, then you'll be like supporting that cause like crazy. They've done psy psychological studies on like the use of money and it doesn't even have to be a lot. I mean, just $1 getting paid $1 to go protest something, you'll be committed for life to that cause. And uh, so to take money for the thing that you do, it just seems like it's so corruptive, but yet there's like artists that, that make a lot of money that I that I really find super interesting that a lot of people give them shit about like Damien Hurst and stuff like I think that dude's like really super interesting how he can exist in both worlds and make whatever he wants to make and sell it for so much money and just but I, I, I think it's genetics I just don't have that personality type I actually had a friend who uh 
who arranged, <laughs> he was helping arrange Damien Hurst's uh, cigarette butts, which is really funny. And he said that was very soul crushing. Oh, wow. He said it was very soul crushing for him. Wow. But for Damien Hurst, it's not, though. No, no, of course not. To have him, to have him, have someone else do it for him. Wow. Well, I think it's like the difference is I don't necessarily see a problem in um, artists being paid for their work. And it, and I think you can point to a lot of examples of like people that have done really interesting stuff that have kind of been uh, capitalists par excellence. But the, the issue really comes into play when the market is is really dictating the content uh, of what these these people are doing and they're not going to the core of their desire. Because, uh, like you said, there's a there's a dollar that's being handed over a certain a certain dollar amount. Yeah. Well, I think it might always be like that because the art history is made in retrospect. It's it's like constantly updating. It's like being revised constantly, in in like reverse engineered art history or like the great artists and everything. It's all fit, fitting fitting a. Uh, it's all being done backwards from with by the people with money i believe but i, I that one that, that one artist that one artist banksy what made me think of it was when he he there was a banksy did this uh like a print of a girl with a balloon you probably saw it and it, it the frame was a shredder yeah oh yeah and then it went to sotheby's and right in the middle of the auction it started being shred or something and then it was like well now it's worth a lot more it like stopped right at the opportune beautiful time like it was aesthetically pleasing to see it half shredded and stuff and it was like a commentary on different things and i and i was like well it's to me it's really cool like i like to see stuff like that but at the same time as soon as you do something that's against the establishment that's like anti-establishment that event is defining the establishment and already becomes a part of it. So it's like it's absorbed right into the establishment. So it's not very effective. And I, I think to be a, 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 I think that art is better than that. Like instead of like creating new images and being a part of the system and just, you know, making objects and stuff, I think art, like, to me, the kinds of art that I think is the best art, the real art, is the art that like improves things and advances things and gives you pictures of a better life, pictures of a better way to perceive things. And I, I think just being a part of the system, you no know, one's changing it from within. Like that, that just doesn't seem seem real to me. Unless you're already independently wealthy and stuff, and then what can you say about? you know other people's conditions or like the human condition because you your it's your experience will be so far removed from it you know yeah completely that that's, i always think of this it's uh, people always say they're going to uh once they get into the system change it and, and you know that's not even just limited to art it's limited i guess it's like you know art is just a microcosm of, of it uh in every career path or whatever path people pick uh, you always hear people say that, but then nothing ever changes. So I, I think the system is more powerful than uh, we initially give it credit for. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of it might just be people not knowing and stuff like, you know, like naivete or something and and, and then getting consumed in it and 
but I don't know. I really, my experience, my experience with the art world is so limited that I really feel like most time I can't even really be talking about it. I can't comment about it because it's, I don't really, I just have such limited, limited experiences with it. But I feel like being, I really feel that art is advancement and that being developmental is better than being experimental. So and, and like I know Mike Kelly, and there's a lot of great artists that I really get inspiration from, and they they believed real good and like real heavily in experimentation and like really experimenting and stuff. But then they would always like I've read interviews where Mike Kelly would say like, "Oh, you you've got to at some point you've got to stop experimenting and you've got to like make something that." you know, shows the results or whatever of the experimentation. But then once you start doing that, I feel like then it's, then you're just making these objects that get consumed and everything. And I don't know, I struggle with it, but I feel like the the most important thing is development is, is, is creating like a trajectory of where I want to go with art and then going towards that and developing and, you know, practicing and increasing my skill and keep on reflecting and learning about what I'm doing and stuff like that. And then not even worry about all that other shit. Yeah. What's interesting uh, with you, you, I mean, I know you've stated that you're, you, you sort of view your daily artistic practice as a kind of ritualistic meditation or therapy, um, which I'm interested in what you view as being exactly the thing that you're attempting to heal. And, uh, if, if this is a kind of practice or discipline that you'd, you'd recommend to others. Well, I would recommend it to anyone because, but not, it doesn't have to be drawing. I think you could do it with writing or songwriting or music or any, any type of the arts really. Uh, I, I think because it's like, I'm trying well, as as far it seemed like there was two parts to your question. The first thing I was thinking of was like with the healing, it's not necessarily like a traumatic thing. Like I'll, I'll use different arts for different reasons, and so like I use storytelling as spoken word to deal with like more like traumatic events and stuff. And then I'll use like lately I've been using audio recordings more for uh, dealing with man mania or manic episodes like like psycho type stuff but um, there are times where I've used recordings for dreams uh, exploring consciousness within dreams and different other things but with drawing I just say anything goes as long as I do a self-portrait every single day, it don't matter, but anything goes. And so like one day, if I have like, oh, my problem is like a past traumatic memory, well, maybe I can draw about it. But then, but another day, I might think, oh, well, I got a lot of stress. And so then I'll do like a high energy drawing or something to kind of like get rid of some of this type of nervousness. Or if I'm having a panic attack in the middle of some show at a house show or something like that, then I'll do 13 self portraits real quick and like fight that panic attack. And so it's like, it doesn't, there's no one set, set way of um, doing it therapeutically. And like another thing, like fears, if I have some irrational fear, like once I realize, Oh, I'm afraid of like, this building collapsing well then i'll like draw myself 
in the middle of that building collapsing, like facing that fear, or if I uh, I have a fear that a rattlesnake, fear of getting bit in the wild or something, I'll like draw a rattlesnake in the wild and like face that fear. And so there's like no, it's like real, it's developmental. Like it's all about helping myself be a better, uh, more balanced person. But it goes beyond that because I believe that real art advances you so it's not just about bettering yourself in the moment it's about bettering yourself to make better future decisions and better future perceptions and have more information more memories and stuff that uh, inform whatever happens in the future if that makes any sense have you ever had any uh, psychic experiences through anything you've drawn like uh, something no i don't believe in psychic stuff no, I, I don't believe in psychic stuff, but I'm so, I, 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 I am uh, uh, I've been diagnosed with uh, paranoid schizophrenia and schizotypal personality disorder and these type of psychotic things, antisocial personality disorder. But I mean, most people now would not even recognize those things in me. They would not see that I'm that that same type of person. But I still have tendencies maybe psychotic tendencies or something and there's been times like one time the first time i ever made a video of all my self-portraits i didn't i hadn't scanned them in yet i just um took a video camera and then took like a like i pushed record and then paused it push record and pause it turn the page you know and record it and then pause it and then turn the page record it pause it so i made like a slideshow basically with a camcorder and then i was playing it and I had all this stress in my environment. My grandmother had just had a stroke and uh, my great aunt had just passed away from Alzheimer's. And I was living with both of them or living right next door to both of them. And I'd recorded all these self-portraits and I was playing them and fast forward and just seeing like, I don't remember how many, it was 2004. So it's probably like nine years of my life. I was purposely flashing it before my eyes. And then all of a sudden this extra screen popped up. And the devil's face emerged and he was like, really like the most handsome, the most handsome person you ever saw in your life. And he was just like admiring himself. It's like a glam shot video of him in this one corner, like where the hearing impaired uh, the person would be like a sign language person would be. And that was like really crazy. And, and then I heard like some voices like like a God type voice say, you're not a schizophrenic, Brian, but if you want to be, I can make you one or something like that. And then it was like some hallucinations and stuff. But I know this is like a mental, uh, it was brought on by stress. I forget what it's called when you have psychotic episodes brought on by stress. But that's what it was. It wasn't like some supernatural psychic thing. Whenever something like that happened, I don't, I don't because I tripped when I was young. I did acid and stuff when I was young. So I don't, it's not a religion. Any psychotic thing, there's no religious or spiritual type of value in it it's just a it's a brain thing it's a nervous system thing you know so here's a question do you think uh lewis wayne would have benefited from going into self-portraiture instead of painting uh, pictures of cats oh man lewis oh he could have benefited for sure but what's interesting is lewis wayne is one of my uh big inspirations because when i was young i saw like a psychology book or something with those pictures in it 
And there was also pictures of this other artist, Andy Wilf, as he progressed through alcohol and drugs. And like, and then there's like a picture right before he died. He did these like giant like skull cell portrait things. It's like really nuts. But see, but but with Lewis Wayne, those pictures of the cats were not really. They're like used as an example of the mind and its descent into madness. Like here's a normal cat, then this here's a nice pretty cat, and then here's this like psycho looking cat, you know, from a from a crazed man. But really, those pictures, none of those paintings were dated. Uh-huh. They have no way of putting them in that order. Like the 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 person that's responsible was like a psychiatrist that found like all these pictures that he did of these cats, and then he arranged them in this order to try to show people like evidence of something else and so that but that to me is like real important because there is a lot of that like we create the meanings like people i don't know how to explain it but i know it we we create like the meanings we make the meanings from subjective experiences and stuff and then once we create that meaning we start seeing it in other ways but it's still like real subjective and so i really don't i really don't know how to explain it but I can see it when it happens. I feel it. At least I I think I can. I think I'm like more aware of it or something like that. You had a desire to go to China and and start doing stand up in China. That's correct, right? Right, right. I taught myself Mandarin for uh, in, uh, six hours a day for nine months straight every single day. I taught myself Mandarin and went there. Yep. How long did you stay in China? Well. They wouldn't renew my – I had one tourist visa, which was three months, and then I went to renew it, and they wouldn't renew it, and then they kicked me out. But it was it was some, it was some time later. It was a little over three months, I believe. I believe it was. But they, they, they physically escorted me out of the country, which was the only bad part about that. But I loved, I loved it so much, man. I loved China so much. It was one of the best places I've ever been in my life. The people are like the most decent people. And like you can walk, I can walk seven miles and then and end up in like the worst, like grimiest type of ghetto or something. It's just criminals type of stuff. And the criminals would be the most hospitable, nicest, coolest people in the world, they would invite me into their house, give me jumbo shrimps, and just treat me like a, like like really nice. I don't know how to explain it. It was like the most incredible place ever. The people, they're prudish. They're like real prudish and stuff. And so they're like real shy and everything. And like, like in America, I always tell people in America, like they fear the black home invader, at least... I don't know if it's still like this, but it used to be like this for like maybe in the 90s or something, 2000s. It was like fear of the crazed black home invader. But in China, they have that same level of like middle middle class fear, but it's not about a home invader, a homicide type thing. It's all about the pickpocket. And the pickpocket is like the most treacherous, evil evil person in 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 that country and to me like a pet pocket like if they steal my wallet i go get a new wallet you know i go get a new id you lose your passport you go get a new passport like a pickpocket there's like nothing a pickpocket can do to me 
except like, you know, ruin my night or something, ruin my afternoon or something like that. But to see them sit around the TV. It's a lesser violation. Yeah. yeah. They sit around the TV every night, glued to the news, watching surveillance footage of like teams of pickpockets. And it's like the most evil. Shit. Oh, man. And, and this is really tough, too. And, and uh, in China, uh, this is another great uh, epiphany I had there. They Every time I would talk to someone for like... 40 minutes, say I talked to someone in Chinese for 40 minutes or so. At some point in that conversation, they would say, Americans don't love their children. And and I just always would think it was really strange. And I would just be like, oh, that's a weird thing to say. But I'd be engrossed in this conversation and this would pop out. And I, I never really thought to like be like, well, why are you saying that? You know, because I'd be so excited to be talking in Chinese and eating good food and stuff. And uh, so then uh, one time I'd been with, I'd met with, I'd hung out with this family maybe twice. And we went different places. Like one time they took me to this alligator port where you could feed uh, whole chickens on a stick to alligators. And like the benches were shaped like alligators and trash cans were shaped like alligators and the trees were shaped like alligators and everything. And then another time they took me to a restaurant. And that, but the, the third time they were supposed to take me to a monastery up on top of this mountain. They were like, they kept saying it's antique, antique, antique. You got to go to this monastery. It's antique, antique, antique. And then I was like, okay. So I met them. Uh, and then they said, why don't you have gifts for the children? And I was like, what? They said, why don't you have gifts for the children? And then like in China, like anytime there's like a problem, it's everyone's problem. It's not just one person. It's not one family's problem. So like people will come out of the stores, people will come out of everywhere, come out of their apartments and you'll be surrounded by a hundred people and everyone will be addressing this problem. Like, yeah, well, this is a real problem. Why didn't you bring gifts for these children? Shame on you. And then all of a sudden in this crowd, I heard, I heard Americans don't love their children like that. And then I was like, oh shit. So then I started having flashbacks of all the times I've heard this, like probably 50, 100 times I've heard Americans don't love their children. I was like, oh, my God, why do you know? And then they said that the people, the whole family it was like probably 18 people in this family. They're like, why didn't you bring gifts for the kids? And I was so like I was being publicly shamed. I was being publicly humiliated, like the whole street was shaming me. I just walked away and I and I didn't go outside for two days. I felt so bad. Like I was like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Why didn't I bring anything for kids? Like, I, you know, I've met these kids. These are great kids. Like, why didn't I do it? And then after two days, I was like, oh, well, I don't really know these kids. You know, like I, I didn't want to be like weird. I didn't want to be like a pervert or something and give these kids candy or something. You know what I mean? And so then I I had the people I was staying with. I was like, call that family and tell them I'll treat them to dinner before we go to this uh, antique church. And then uh, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll have gifts for the children. And so then I went to the store and I got these crazy ass firecrackers that were like two firecrackers and one that don't even have a fuse you just strike them on the side of the box like a match like a wooden match box thing and so i got like these really kick-ass firecrackers and then um i had like all these Amer. i thought well i'll bring them my american coins and shit because they all love money and stuff and uh, so i met the kids gave them this stuff and they're like oh yeah this is great and everything and i took them to dinner and we were eating and stuff and then i was like okay in america 
you know, they teach us at a very young age, don't take candy from strangers. Don't take gifts from strangers. You know, they show us movies in elementary school, cartoons about, you know, not taking um, uh, stuff from strangers as a kid. So as an adult, I don't think to give stuff to strangers. But I didn't learn these type of words like, like molester or kidnap or pervert. Like I didn't know all this type of stuff. So all I could think of was stealing. So I was like, well, you know, sometimes kids get stolen, you know? And they're like, yeah, yeah. They're like all eating this great meal. They're like, yeah, yeah. Uh, in America, don't, they don't love their children. And I was like, yeah, but you know, sometimes children get stolen. And they're like, yeah, not, not in China. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't have that problem here. They said, we don't have that problem here. We love our children. Chinese people, we love our children. And I was like, really? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, well, well what happens, you know, if, if someone tries to steal the child? And they said, well, we shoot them in the head behind the police station. And then I was like, whoa. And then they, I said, well, some, sometimes people will... Like, say a man and a husband and wife will be arguing, and the wife will say, he tried to steal my child, you know, but he didn't really try to steal that child. I said, you know, so if he gets shot in the head behind the police, they said, we don't, they said, it's a, it's a matter of life and death when it comes to our children. We love our children. It's like, people don't lie about that. If you lie about that, you get shot in the head behind the police station. And I was like, holy shit. And then I started look, I started paying more attention to children in China. And man, I saw in, in a city of 3 million people, I'd see like seven-year-old children get on a bus all by themselves, taking gum from strangers and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is really something. And, and then I was like, man, I bet because they've been living in a society for like thousands more years than Americans, I think they might know how to do it better. And so there was like a lot of things like this that I was seeing over there that just made me think like, this is the best place in the world to live. I would talk to people like, do you drown your girl babies and stuff like that? And because this is what I grew up on, this is what they would teach me in America. Like, oh, Chinese people, they drown their girl babies. And and talking to people in China say, do you drown your girl babies? They would say, well, my grandmother told me one time when she was a kid she heard about some lady gave birth to a daughter or something and that baby got drowned but it wasn't happening like that you know it was like all and then a lot of things that people would say like oh with the religions and stuff they would say uh well the lawyers the myths or the or the older type of things that used to happen they would like the lawyers the chinese american lawyers in america will perpetuate these things to help people get citizenship and stuff that's what a lot of people would say over there but i really don't know because i didn't live there long enough i didn't get to know people long enough like what was going on you know but this is what i was being told that it wasn't really really like that and I would see people with more than one child. They would have, to, they would like pay for a permit or something. They would say, like I say, oh well, you have two kids, you have three kids or something. They say, yeah, it costs more. We pay like some fee or something, like some fine. I think they called it. It was beautiful though. <laughs> what was your stand-up comedy routine like? Well, what I would do is I had routine. Well, like there, the language there, like you could say, 
like different, you could say the same word, like d- different ways with different tones. So it's like play on words and stuff. But I would also like make jokes about like George Bush or something. And uh, there they weren't, it wasn't like a threat to them, but like I, what I would do, here's what I, well, when I got there, I found out they didn't have stand-up comedy at all. So all my dreams were shattered. But what I started to do was, because everything was so wild looking to me, so different. I had my video camera, so I started videotaping everything. And then a couple of times I videotaped the traffic, like at real busy intersections, because it looked so insane. And so I would like videotape this intersection. And I would, you see like a semi-truck and then a rickshaw and then a bicycle with like, 20 chairs on the back of it like all stacked up like a pyramid crazy and like just different stuff so i'd be videotaping the traffic and then someone would stop and say oh you're a foreigner you're a foreigner what are you doing out there oh my friends don't believe i'm here or my family doesn't believe i'm really here so i'm videotaping how wild this you know the place is it's so cool and everything and then i would get more and more people would come around and then i could start doing my routine on the streets and then, uh, you know, the I'll have like at rush like lunchtime rush hour, man. I would have like three hundred people on a street corner just dying laughing. Uh, but they didn't have stand up comedy at all. It was just like it was like a natural thing, just saying crazy stuff. And uh, man, whenever I would tell, like there, there came a time like every day I'd pick a different corner, like a different intersection, and film the traffic. And, and then. <laughs> In China, people would just throw their trash on the streets. They would shit on the street, piss on the street. In some places, not like in big cities and stuff, but like in smaller cities. Not in villages either, but in the smaller cities. And then they would pay like poor people or homeless people. They would give them jobs of cleaning up all this trash. And they have trash cans on the street, but just nobody used them. They would just give the people that were cleaning up the street something to do so they throw their trash on the street but i'll always keep like some paper some wrappers food wrappers and stuff in my back pocket and if ever the crowd was like i was starting to lose them like they were thinking like oh i should be getting back to work or something i would just say i'd hold up my finger like one and i would say excuse me and i would walk through this whole entire crowd with my finger hanging up and i would reach into my back pocket and i would hold up this trash for the whole crowd to see and then i would throw it in the trash can and then everyone would start dying laughing and i'd have them back in the like putty in the palm of my hand thinking it was the funniest shit in the world yeah. <laughs> seeing a foreigner throw trash in the trash can <laughs> and, and then yeah and then people they would every time every single day there would be some people that didn't have to get back to work or some people that had like nothing to get back to, like they weren't babysitting or nothing. And they would take me to like eat like some peacock eggs or something really nice. They'd be like, Oh man, you're this, you're so funny. You're so great. And they would talk to me and stuff like that. It was wild. It was really beautiful. Twice I met the secret police and didn't know it, but everyone else said, to everyone else did and uh, it was really creepy i was set up both times i set up my camera on the intersect on the intersection start filming the traffic and then someone would come up to me and be like oh a foreigner what are you doing i'd be like oh my friends don't believe i'm here my family doesn't believe i'm really here i'm filming this beautiful country filming this great stuff and filming the traffic and then uh, other people would walk by and they would look at me look at this other person and then keep walking and then I, I and like after like 10 minutes or something i would think well maybe 
you know, it's a bad intersection. Like maybe <laughs> it's like the setting or something. It's like bad. It's like maybe today's Wednesday's hump day or something, you know, like my brain would try to think of excuses of like, why am I not getting a crowd? Why, why am I not generating a crowd here? And uh, well, it's because the person was a secret police, but I didn't know it. But the other people knew who they were, like the people in town, like the people going about their day or whatever. And uh, what clued me off both times, what clued me, what gave me the idea that they this is what they were was because the whole time we'd be talking in Chinese, like 30, 40 minutes or something talking in Chinese, never say anything in English. But then completely out of the blue, like... Like it would seem like random, like in the conversation, like have nothing to do with anything in the subject. The person who spoke perfect English and would like lean into me, like real close to my face and say in perfect English, the Chinese government is very good. <laughs> like that. And then, oh my God, all of a sudden, the first time. It happened like the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I didn't even know I had a hairy ass crack until this person said this, the hair on my ass crack stood up. And I was like, whoa, like, whoa, what the fuck? And then I was just like, oh man, like it, it, it was shocking, like to totally shocking. And um, so then I was like, oh, I, I need to get away from this person. Like, but I didn't want to be like, showing that I was freaking out or anything like so then I was just like oh I was supposed to meet some friends in about 15 minutes or something and then like come about 10 minutes later I'd be like well I got friends they're probably thinking I'm heading that way and then five more minutes I'd be like well I've got friends I'm supposed to be meeting right now and it's oh my friends probably think I'm lost yeah and just keep doing this for like another half hour 40 minutes or something like that and then one time I like I kept the video, uh, uh, I paused the video recorder, but then I uh, unpaused it, like turned it back on and everything. The person, I was so scared to try to videotape this person. All I could do was videotape like um, the, uh, well, what happened was I said to the person, I said, oh, can you, I'm supposed to be meeting them at the nearest computer cafe. And so then finally, after like 30 more minutes or whatever, this person said, well, I'll take you to this video cafe. Well, I'll, I'll pay for this like little, I forget what they call it, but it's like a bicycle, but it was motorized with two wheels in the back, kind of like a motorized rickshaw. And I was so afraid to videotape the person. And all you see on the video is just like the curb and like different storefronts, like going by super fast or whatever. Like it was really creepy. <laughs> So you returned from your China, your Chinese expedition, your uh, with your tail between your legs of um, not not quite living out your dreams of becoming a successful Chinese stand-up comedian, and then went into this uh, this thing that you call stand-up tragedy, which makes me think. Um, I'm just wondering if your thoughts about this, um, like it just just overall if if you would maybe agree or go as far as to say that things like despair doubt humiliation and fear of loss uh are more at the core of your work than like so-called creativity uh no i think it was more about 
but I don't think any of that was involved in it at all. I just thought there were so many comedians in this country, probably 10,000, maybe more now. But back then, uh, in the mid-2000s, I think there was, I felt like there was like at least 10,000 comedians. And I just wanted to be dead. And so I was like, well, I'm just, there's like all this bullshit going on, all these terrible things going on in life. And all the people love the people that make them forget about all these things, make them, you know, laugh at all these things. And so I was like, fuck that, man. I'm going to make everyone cry about all this shit. And so then I just like would tell personal stories and try to make people cry. And I would use like videos and different types of music like experimental music and stuff to try to make people make people cry and everything. But then that turned into, um, I did that for a while, but then that turned into wanting, there was always people in the audience that were like psycho, psychopaths, psychopathics, not always, but a lot of times when I did it, there were psychopaths in the audience that would be like, God damn, man, you make me want to cut the head off a fucking monkey. God damn, man. Or they'd be like, oh, God damn, I can out-masturbate you. I can fucking out-masturbate you. Because they would just take whatever I was talking about and not have any emotions to it at all. But it would still, like, trigger them in some way. And so then I thought, oh, I need to, like, stop preaching to the choir. Because the people that were showing up were already the people that cared. Like, if I did something about animals, everyone in the crowd is an animal lover, you know? So it was like... It kind of like wasn't that helpful, but then I was seeing that these there were these psychos that would show up, and so then I thought, well, I want to make these people feel like they're going to die, and so then I tried to do uh, performances where I would give these people panic attacks to make them think that they were going to die. Like at any second, I wanted to give these psychopathic, potential psychopathic people panic attacks, and then, um, but then I ended up just kind of like getting tired of that. It seems like once you're maybe trying to, you have some desired outcome or goal of of what this thing is intended to be. Well, I always felt like art should like better, like should help things and make things better. You know, I felt like art should be for a purpose, like it should be do it for some reason and stuff instead of just like doing it to like just make a name make a name for yourself you should have some goal or some purpose yeah see that's, that was another thing i forgot to talk about uh to mention in the when and when you uh, in before earlier you said um oh man what was it it was um the purpose of oh an object yeah instead of like when when it comes to the daily self-portraits like I, when I was saying, oh, I don't know if people can see them right, because people look at them like objects. But I think for a long time now, a lot of the art that I really like, the art that I think is advancing uh, uh, improvement and stuff, it's because it's the process. It's about the means. It's not the ends. It's not about the object part of it. So I've I've always felt like that. Like if you do some type of art, like shocking, like I believe in shocking art. Like I, I've always thought that, you know, like people could use shock value uh, to try to get people to behave differently. But now that I'm older, I think like disgust is a lot is a lot more effective than shock. But I feel like all the times when I would be shocking and stuff, I was think, well, you got to be shocking for a reason. Like you can't just be shocking for shock value's sake. You know what I mean? Like. Like, there has to be some 
like better improvement advancement type of purpose for it. When does it turn from shock into disgust? Well, I don't think it does, but I just think that shocking, I don't think it's that effective because I think you can shock you. If you do something shocking, I think audience, the audience members, if you do something shocking in the hopes of changing the people in the audience's behavior, I think the people in the audience will see something shocking and be more inclined to turn away from it, turn away from whatever shocking. But if you do something disgusting, I think that the people, it, it affects a different part of their brain, I think, or their nervous system or something. And so it, it imprints differently. Like shocking, you forget about things that are shocking, but disgusting things you remember them because you don't want to like eat some moldy food and then get sick again. You know what I mean? So like disgusting things, your body is more, it's more effective to be disgusting. Are you more interested, would you say in kind of exploring uh, like taboo as opposed to like some kind of rebellion or like transgression? Well, I don't know. I'm drawn to things that are, I don't know, tabooistic. If I was still performing, like I, I, I've kind of, I have to tell people I retired from performing to focus on drawing and sensory stuff. But if I was still performing today, I think I would be doing something called triggerism, which is like purposely triggering people, I think, to get them to deal with it. But I, I think the, like I use, I try to use art because I've had psychopathic tendencies and sociopath, maybe not psychopathic, but sociopathic. I'm not sure really what the difference is, but I think, I think when I talked to therapists and stuff, when I was younger, it was more on the sociopathic side, but I've used art to try to sensitize myself, to increase my sensitivity, because that's like more of improving and advancing and everything. And to do the same thing, like whenever I would go on tour, I would never do like big long tours, like maybe four or five at the most or something like that, because every night I would want to do something different because it wasn't about, I didn't want to become desensitized. Like if I was the band, I think about this a lot too, when I was performing, if I was the band Led Zeppelin, I wouldn't want to be playing, you know, the song remains the same every single night. I would be like, you know, I'd want to have a different show every night. So because I don't, I, I don't think it, or it, I think art is supposed to create sensitivity and not be used to desensitize. But at the same time, when it, when it comes to therapy, doing it like therapeutically, I've learned that with, with, with drawing, at least I can take a traumatic event. Like one time I found this dead lady on the beach when I was six looking for seashells. I found this dead black lady, naked black lady on the beach. And it was like really like traumatic to me. But when I drew a picture of it, like I painted a picture of it one day, I thought, oh God, that's right. That shit fucked me up. Oh God, that was so crazy. Oh God, that, that really bothers me. And then like something in life triggered me. I think I saw like a dead bloated person on TV or something. And then I like brought me back to that. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. So I thought, well, I need to deal with that. So I thought, well, I'll start painting it. So then I was painting it for my daily self-portrait picture that day. And what I did was I drew it from a third-person perspective instead of, like, the first-person perspective. And I made it kind of, like, cartoony. Not cartoony, but kind of, like, childlike. I drew myself as a child. 
so it kind of looked childlike in a way. And then when I, I scanned the picture in and then I used this picture in like a spoken word performance and then I used I've used it in like um artist talks and stuff like that. So I've become familiar with that. I used it in like uh, two different books, I think I used this picture in. So I became like more and more the more I became familiar with this picture, that picture came to stand for that event. So now when I hear like Ocean City, Maryland or seashells on the beach or six years old or something like whatever the triggers are in life, I go to this picture that I made instead of to being first person memory in that event. And so I think it's really in that way, it decent. You can use it purposefully to desensitize yourself. But I and I think that's healthy and like a helpful thing for artists to do. But I think the goal should be to increase the sensitivity overall. You know. Do you think that to whatever degree you possess some kind of sociopathic traits, that in some way that it's provided a certain kind of like emotional attachment that's afforded you an increased sense of perspective or greater degree of boldness and honesty? I don't know. But I remember being told that I would get worse as I got older. I would never get better. And it's been the total opposite. And I think becoming an artist has had a whole lot to do with it. And uh, there was a time where I had a lot of self-loathing. Uh, I think about the time when I first started doing daily self-portraits, I was really self-loathing. I didn't have very much emotions. And I had very few. Like I was... Uh, uh, either angry or anxious. Uh, it was like about it. Stressed, stress and anxiety. There was very few. But then I think there's this one thing, I forget what it's called, where you, it's like a name, there's a name for this cognitive process. Let me try to remember it. It's like if you, the more you become familiar with something, the more subconsciously you're able to like it. Like the more something is repeated, the more it's like a cognitive bias or something, the more you experience something, the more something is repeated, the more likable it is. And I, I wonder how much drawing myself and becoming familiar with myself has increased the likability of myself. I forget what that is. It's not exposure. There's a name for that type of thing. Maybe like the illusion of truth effect? That's 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 kind of similar. Like the more that well, that, that yeah, that's that's similar. Yeah, if it's perceived to be true, even if it's not true, then you take it to be fact. I, I'm sure yeah. there's like an overlap there. Yeah, yeah, because you get a feeling, you get a good feeling. People, the brain is divided into two halves, and one half is for pattern recognition, and the other half is for uh, uh, experiencing novel, detecting novelty. And so uh, when people see a pattern or where something is repeated, we're always looking for patterns. When something is repeated, it gives us a good feeling. It's like pattern recognition. We're like, ah. And so, but subconsciously, it releases something that's like, oh, okay, I recognize that. Like there's like a good feeling that comes with that, but it's like a physical feeling. And then the the novelty Aspect. I'm trying to think of what this is called. I know exactly. I know what you're talking about. It's all related. It definitely is all related. They used to think that like the brain was for, there was two sides of the brain, like the right brain and the left brain meant different things. And one side was for like music or art or something. And one was for something else like analytical. 
I never get, I never really looked into that too much because I just felt like it was like, I just felt like it was too hokey or something. But, but the more I pay attention, the more I think it's, there's two different processes going on with it. What is that called? It's like a cognitive bias because you, it's not decent, it's not recent. At any rate, I, I've thought about um, a lot of these extreme things that you've you've put yourself in. Um, I'm wondering. Well, you must have had some concerns about this, but uh, it's certainly like to how far your thinking has gone as as far as your fears with like maybe going permanently insane from some of your experiments, like particularly with the ones involving the use of uh, neurologically damaging drugs. Or the or the different forms of uh, sensory deprivation. But at that point in time, it didn't matter. Matter. I didn't. I had low self worth, and so it, it. It. I guess you could say uh, low self esteem or like some negative self, self um, labeling or something. I don't know, but I had a bad self image or something self destructive or something maybe, but. I don't believe or is for that. So I've tried to get, I get, I get away from that. And so like a lot of times, like people will send me like weird drugs or something. People give me strange drugs or something just because they want me to draw some picture. And then it'll take me like six months or something for me to get to a place where I think like now my slate is blank. There's no environmental stressors. There's no relationship stressors or my body's like in good health. I'm at a total like blank uh, uh, slate like a tabula rasa zero 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 coordinate and then I'm like okay now I can do this drug and see what this is like but then there's also like this part of me that's like have this drug sitting somewhere hidden in my apartment for like four months and then all of a sudden I'll be like now I'm reckless. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to take this drug. I don't give a shit. You know, so it's like, it's hard to be non-subjective. It's like, you can try to be like a scientist about it. See, I like science. I think the great artists, the greatest artists and the greatest scientists are the most curious of the people. And so I think like, you got to be curious, but see, the art is subjective and the science is to try to be totally objective and so I just try to be aware of both as much as possible. See, um, because I, I said cognitive bias, it made me think there's like 150 now, over 150 cognitive biases that we have, like errors in thinking that we possess as human beings. And knowing them, knowing all about them, does not prevent you from committing those errors in thinking. Like, it's just how we are. And so science tries to limit that as much as possible, restrict that. Oh, man, this is wild. I've been thinking about this. Science tries to restrict that. And then the the art it goes, uh, it's more like creativity and stuff is more about loose thinking. And so I was thinking the other day, like, well, if you want to think out side of the box like to be creative and stuff you've got to change the box and then I was thinking about what does the box mean and stuff like that and then I was thinking like oh man to be creative when you loosen up mentally 
like people, a lot of times artists will give themselves rules and it's kind of like changing, doing the sensory experiments, like limiting one of my senses. It's like kind of giving myself a rule, like restricting myself because that helps you change the box. It helps you think outside of the box. And so, but when your mind is like uptight or rigid, your creativity is limited. But then like people will like say like, oh, well, drugs, how does that in- impact creativity? Or like, how does doing these drugs influence your creativity? Or how does it doing the sensory stuff change your creativity? But what it is, is you're lo- doing these different types of things, loosens this kind of strict thinking, like this critical thinking or your cognitive restraints like whatever you use like the rules you use every day subconsciously as you go about life doing these other things breaks that down it like loosens the associative thinking so it enables creativity but this is also why creative people are like super prone to believing all kinds of stupid shit because they have this loose thinking. <laughs> they don't have this like scientific rigorous thought, you know, they don't try to like learn every single 150 cognitive bias and be on the lookout for every single one of them and then try to correct after the fact because they're going to commit them anyways. And so then I was like, wow, man, <laughs> like the human brain is really nuts. It's really, it's really something. And then like people say too, like, uh, Pat, they, they say like insanity is repeating the same behavior over and over again and expecting different results. But you can do the same thing over and over again every day and get different results. It just depends on how much you're paying attention, like how loose or how strict your thinking is or like like what what you the kind of attention or focus and stuff that you put into it. So it's, I don't know. It's a really great thing to be making art and using it to try to figure things out as opposed to like making it as an object and just not caring about the process or what the process is for, or what the object's for, you know? I mean, I can make videos now. I've got a video called calm peaceful and, um, I can watch that video and then remember it, it'll like trigger my brain to remember the most peaceful moments in my life of the last 24 years. And then seeing how they're made, it kind of like, it's like, Oh, I can like pause it on one and be like, Oh yeah, I made that line because of this, or I made the shading this way because of that. And then, and then it like, it like, um, it's like a contagious and like make me feel peaceful all over again. But, once I'm, if I'm triggered by something else, like angered, if something's going on, like something pisses me off, and I watch this peaceful video, it's, it's almost too late because it has some effect, but not not like normal because I've already got my blood pressure and all these physiological changes happening. And so it, I, I've learned that it's best to like watch this video before I think I might get angry or something. So then I have these peaceful type of chemicals or physiology, the peaceful brain chemistry or whatever happening. And then once I have this anger, like once I experience something that's angry while I'm feeling this other way, it's not nearly as effective. And so, but 
going back to what you said at the beginning, like with other people look at these pictures, look at these videos or self portraits, like like my girlfriend Nicole, she saw my happy video and she was like, Well, this doesn't make me happy at all. She's like, This doesn't doesn't do it to me at all. It's like, Yeah, because this is not you. This is not like all your memories, all your experiences and all your like transformations changing from day to day, you know, or changing within the moment each day and stuff like that. It's like, it's not creative unless it's useful. It's not creative unless you can put it to some type of use, unless it's effective. Like, you, you got to have novelty as some type of element of surprise and stuff in there to be creative. But you also have to be able to use it to, like, functional, like, functionality. And, like, people have, you know, made art that's anti-functional and stuff like that. But I just don't believe it it's that helpful it doesn't it doesn't advance us that much they might advance the material like if they make something that's anti-functional out of like steel and they bend it all crooked that might like advance us technologically as being able to bend steel all crooked for some other useful way but when in an art way to put it on a pedestal and just be like i bend it it bent some steel here like it doesn't it does it does it's not creative to me Unless the process itself. You know, maybe these kind of uh, irrational truths are, are things that are found, uh, like I'm interested in this idea, which I wonder if you agree, uh, that Ezra Pound was into, he was kind of on this trip about uh, declaring that the artist was the antennae of the race. Um, would you describe, you know, if if you're saying that, you, you know, creativity is used as some kind of fun, in some fun, functional manner. Would you say that like the function of your work is something like uh, you going into the solitary, you know, psychic exploration into the unknown um, from which some kind of expanded consciousness is brought forth and then absorbed by the collective? No, but I, I think there's, like if I do something sensory deprivation, some drawing experiment like this, it's because I want to, it's, it's for the purpose of changing my neurology so that I can change my, it's for the memory, for the physical changes, like learning stuff changes your brain. It, creates new learning things creates new neurons and stuff and uh, creates new like um, connectivity between different neurons or different part even different parts of the brain depending on what you learn and so doing these type of experiments and stuff is for doing a purpose of changing my brain they kind of basically uh, adding to like the, I don't know, maybe like a database or something of like the information that I possess, uh, sensory information that I possess so that I can make better decisions in the future so that I can make better predictions in the future about my behavior. And so it's not like doing it for some type of like, like psychic way or supernatural way. It's just giving me more experiences in life to identify with other people, empathize with other people, uh, creating empathy and uh, creating, um, uh, 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 connecting with experiences of the, of other people maybe. And even, and in myself, 
giving myself more information to work with in the future, no matter what what happens to me. And so, like, shoot, by controlling experiences, experiences change your brain. And so by controlling what experiences you have, you take the reins more. You're, like, able to steer more when you're experiencing the future, I think. As far as doing self-portraits on drugs, like... Out of the drugs you've taken, what was the most pleasant, and then what was the most unpleasant? The most pleasant would be, I think at that time it was Xanax. I think I took a totem pole, maybe, bar Xanax, and I felt this real down-to-earth, real social, real comfortable in my own skin, and real social. And then I think... The most unpleasant was one like an antipsychotic uh, tranquilizer. I think the tranquilizers, both tranquilizers, yeah, Seroquel and uh, Trazodone. Trazodone was the worst. I had the most side effects on it. Uh, lithium was kind of disturbing. Um, the um, uh, DMT was the most potent. But I've never tried like mescaline or peyote. Never, no, nobody's ever offered that stuff to me. And then there's new uh, psychedelic uh, things out there now. I forget what they're called, analogs or something. That are yeah, like, the chemical analogs. Yeah, there's like some that are really supposed to be really super cool, but I've never tried them. I actually had some and then got real paranoid and flushed a bunch down the toilet. <laughs> about two months ago <laughs> i had uh, one plsd and i had um oh shit what was that other one there was something else uh, two ci no no this one oh man it's the one that's supposed to be not meant it's like lsd but it's not mental at all it's only visual and i, I regret flushing that one. Oh man it's similar. It's like in the same kind of class, like that that one guy invented it or discovered it or created it or whatever, that Shulgin, I think is his name. Shulgin? Shulkin? Shulgin, I think. That guy, he he did all that stuff. <laughs> Man, I got so paranoid, I just flushed it all. I, I haven't, luckily, I'd made it. I'd had so much different drugs all hidden in my apartment at one time and I I made a map because I was like well if the police ever come here like quick I'll never be able to like get it all at once and so I did a self portrait that was kind of like a map of where all of them were hidden at so I could get to them real quick and then sure enough one day there was like all this problem with the neighbors so I had two different neighbors with the um US marshals and they give me real paranoia because they're allowed to brutalize you uh, Jesus man <laughs> oh man I tell you that they, they are fucking brutal man and so the people would tell me uh, the US marshal they say don't fuck around with the US marshals there's no such thing as martial brutality they are as brutal as they want to be and there's no repercussions and um, I saw it I saw it happen every time I went to court I saw evil uh, they really are really evil and um so the U.S. Marshals were coming to my neighbor's house, and they would show up so fast in this parking lot, front and back, 
so fast that it just it it, it 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 was beyond reason that I could get to all nine places in my apartment at the same time. And then I just panicked one time and I just flushed them all down the toilet. I don't blame you for uh, taking the precaution necessary to protect you, yourself from uh, prison or getting the shit beat out of you, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. One time, uh, the U.S. Marshals, they would tell you, they said, uh, okay, the first time, I think, I saw them, they would just beat someone. And that was like, well, that person was kind of slow. So, you know, I was like, it just seemed like, well, you know, they're a little rough with this slow guy, you know. And then uh, the, with the chain, one day they said, we've changed the rules. You can't smoke on the bus. No more cigarettes or anything like this. They said, if you smoke on the bus, we're going to take you off the bus and beat you or something like that. And then someone started smoking on the bus and they pulled the bus over opened up the cage port took a guy that was not even the guy smoking and, and uh took him off the bus and up the embankment on the hill so everyone could see on the bus both sides of the bus could watch them i mean they beat the fuck out of this guy uh, and then brought that guy back on the bus dragged him onto the bus looking like that he had to go to the judge looking like that and then one time, uh, every time you get to court, they would say, this is in D.C., they would say, um, keep your left foot on the blue tape. There was like tape, like electrical tape on the floor. And they would say, keep your left foot on the blue tape and your right shoulder on the wall at all times. Do not let your left foot come up off of that blue tape. Do not let your right shoulder come up off of that wall. If your left foot comes up off of that blue tape, we will beat you. If your right shoulder comes off of that wall, we will beat you. And you'll go to court looking like that. And oh my God, this guy in front of me, like probably about maybe eight people or so in front of me, uh, his, um, he was walking normal, but his hips kind of shifted and his right shoulder came up off of the wall and it was a center block wall. And they slammed as soon as his uh, shoulder came up off of that wall, like in like a normal stride. Like it's hard. You have to drag your foot and drag your shoulder on opposite sides of your body. It's a hard thing to do. And uh, when his shoulder bounced off, it just so happened there was a marshal right behind him. He took the side palm, the side of his head and slammed it into the cinder block wall and just knocked the guy like unconscious. And we like. Oh man, the people in front of me was so scared. I was so scared because the guy was laying over top of the blue tape. We didn't know what to do. And the people, it was someone, I guess it was the person right in front of him. And then he talked to people behind. You just got to drag your foot over this guy. You just got to drag your foot over the unconscious guy. Yeah, keep your right shoulder on the wall while you're dragging your foot over this guy laying on the blue tape. It was crazy. Then the worst, the worst I ever saw, well, I saw him a couple of times beat people and handcuff them with their arms way up high on the bars and leave them like that for like seven hours or something. And uh, that was bad. But then they would say, and, and this is how brutal they were. They would not even lock the cell door in the, they called the bullpen. They had like a whole bunch of cells that were called the bullpen and uh, they would wait for your name to be called out. And then they would take you to see the judge and they, there would be like, say this cell was for 16 people. They'd have maybe 60, 80 people in this, like sardines big time. And um, 
they would not lock that cell door because they were so fear to be feared, so brutal. Nobody would think about just opening up this, like the door was unlocked and there were so many people, sometimes people would push and mush and then the door would partly come open, but the people up front would be like, no, we got to shut this. We got to keep it shut at all times and like, would like put all their weight on it and stuff to hold it back just so they wouldn't get beat. But the marshals would tell you when you get into the bullpen, they would say, do not fall asleep. And they have benches around the back and one side and they would say, do not go in there and lay down. If we call your name out to see the judge and you're asleep, we will come in there, we will find you, we will beat you, and we will take you to see the judge looking like that. And, uh, oh man, people would go in there, like try to be the first ones in there or something and lay down like under the benches. And one time, this, the worst I ever saw, uh, somebody went to sleep underneath one of those benches. And, um, they they came back like probably five, six times yelling this person's name, yelling their name, so-and-so, so-and-so, come on now, don't make me come in there, so-and-so, so-and-so. And then when they finally come in there, everybody moved away, they started kicking this person with boots kicking this person in the head, face, and then the, the person woke up and they put their arm over, they stuck their arm out from underneath that little metal bench, like they were trying to use the top of the bench to push, pull themselves out. They started stomping this guy's elbow and arm, probably broke his elbow, uh, beat this guy and everything, took him to the judge, we're all bloody and everything, and then brought him back and then handcuffed him to the highest uh, horizontal bar and then made him, he didn't come back till Bible study that night in prison. It was crazy, man. I don't like marshals at all. You're actually our third guest to have served time in prison. Um, man, uh, everybody that's really doing crazy shit that's, like, interesting, like, they go to prison. Our brains are loose. How much time have you served in prison, and uh, specifically for what, if you want to share that? I was in jail. I've been in jails, like, regular jails a few times. I don't know, maybe one, two, three... Four, four times I've been in jails. It's mostly for like fighting, I think, fighting. And then uh, prison. I was in prison for eight months on a two a two year sentence, but I was eight months time served because in D.C. I went I went to prison in D.C. before I even went to the court. Uh, well, I, I went to first. I went to the D.C. jail for two weeks, but then if you're uh, back then, I don't know if it still the same way or not. This is 1990. Uh, if you were charged with a violent crime, they didn't want you in the local D.C. jail, like the regular, like it would be the county jail or whatever, city jail or whatever. Uh, but D.C. is all federal. Uh, but they didn't want you in there with like the drunk driving senator or, you know, the bank fraud guy or, you know, the, the white collar criminals. They all violent criminals got sent to the prisons waiting to stand trial. A lot of people, man, I bet you thousands and thousands of people ended up uh, doing time in prison for felonies they committed in prison in self-defense uh, and not even uh, for their original charge. I was very lucky, very lucky. If I had stayed probably two weeks, maybe one week more, maybe three weeks or four weeks, there's no way. I, I would probably still be in prison to this day because it was coming to the time where I was going to have to hurt somebody. And uh, you can't 
be in a situation like that uh, and not, you know, and not be violent, you know, especially if you have violent tendencies anyways, you're putting your, putting your, getting put in some type of violent stuff. You can only like, you know, not be violent for so long before you have to like do it, be violent. <laughs> yeah. Like the one time I got jumped, man, I, I was fucking lucky. Uh, one time I got jumped by three guys, young guys, all 17, like home invaders. And uh, at least two of them I know had like a lot of felonies, multiple home invasion felonies and stuff. And, so, and something told me, I don't know what it was, but I had my back to the back of the cell and they shut the cell door in front of me and I fucked up. Uh, what happened was I was standing talking to someone. They were locked down inside their cell, like solitary. But solitary was so packed that once you fucked up and stabbed someone or something in the cell block, they didn't have room for you in solitary. So they just made your cell. They took your roommate out if you, or cellmate out if you had one, and they made that cell solitary. And then they would, sometimes they would double up and put, well, two, two local solitary type people put them in the same cell. Well, I fucked up one time. I mean, I was standing outside someone's cell, talking to him. I had both my hands in my pocket. And then one of them just came up behind me, grabbed me like like a bear hug from behind and pushed me into the next cell. It was like, come on, let's, let's go, let's fight like that. And uh, my back was to the back of the cell. And then the three of the three of them come in. And they, but the last one shut the cell door behind them, like locked it. So there was no way any of us could get out from that cell. But for some reason, something in the back of my mind, so lucky, in the back of my head said, don't fight them. And I was like, I'm not, they, they were like, come on, light skin, come on, Casper, whatever. They were like, fuck this. Dude. And I was like, I'm not on that kind of time. I'm not on that kind of time. I'm, not, I'm trying to get out of here and I stay in here longer. And then I, kept, I said that like about three or four times. And then uh, one of the gumps, it was like a... I guess now you say transsexual or homosexual is like a feminine man. They called him Gumps. One of the Gumps was outside, said, they got light skin. They got light skin, pop cell 42 or whatever it was. And then the guards opened that door and then they left. And I never, I never got like punched. I think one time they hit me in the chest, but I was lucky because man, oh my God, like two days later, or just a few days later, uh, a guy came in, a young black guy came in and uh, was shadow boxing. And the guy in the cell next to me said, oh, see that motherfucker? He's soft. Uh, see, he's shadow boxing. He, he can't fight. Uh, that motherfucker can't fight. He's just trying to show off the shit. That motherfucker's soft. And uh, man, those same three fucking kids uh, got that guy one evening like that and the guy in the back had a screwdriver and stabbed him seven times in the back with a Phillips head screwdriver and he, he knocked him out like he really knew how to box he knocked all three of those fucking kids out but when he came out of there he had this clear fluid running out of his spine and then the, they said he collapsed and died when he got out of the cell block man that, that would have happened to me uh, if I that was fucking lucky and see they never asked me for anything it wasn't like they were trying to run and trying to have sex with me it was just like these kids with all this time home invaders were just trying to like show off and like be tough for the older kids man it was fucking close there was other close there was another close time i had like that if i had stayed in there any longer i would have had to kill somebody or i'd be dead 
you know, or at least hurt someone real bad, get some charges in there. So I got real fucking lucky. And they told me too, like even the guards, when I got there, like they told me the DC jail, when I went from the DC jail to the Lorton prison, they said, um, oh, the average lifespan of a white boy ain't but 48 hours. You ain't be there long like that, like trying to scare me and stuff. And then, and then the, when I got there, the guards would be like, oh, you're white. You're white. Don't worry about it. You won't be here long. You're white. Like that. And I was like, no, you don't know what I'm charged with and stuff. And uh, I would see black people, the same charges as me, armed robberies and stuff. And uh, they would get 15, 45 years. There was one guy named Pops that was a barber. That guy sold weed like in the 1960s, uh, got busted uh, with heroin or something in the 70s. In 1990, got caught with a dime bag of weed, was looking at 30, uh, 30 years when I was there. And they, they were like, but you're white. You, you won't be here long. You're white. Like that. Racism and sentencing is real. I had a black judge. I had a public defender that only came to my uh, prison twice. And both times he would say like, oh, you plead guilty to a, a strong arm robbery or plead guilty to this or plead guilty to that. And I say, it wasn't me. You got the wrong man. Uh, you got to go to trial. You got the wrong man. But then I'd be like, you got to get me out of here. They're giving me death threats every day, all day, every day. I'm getting death threats. You got to get me out of here. You got to get me a bond or something. And then, then <laughs> this guy, he would never return a phone call or nothing. So then when I went to court, the probably like the third time or something after the grand jury indictment, the judge said, uh, like to, it was like the, he said to the prosecutor, "What's your evidence?" I forget what the legal terms were, but he he was talking in like legal jargon. And then the prosecutor guy said, um, "Oh well," and he read like the he read the dispatch call, and then he read like the police report or something. And the judge said, "Was that it? You don't have any witnesses or anything like that?" And they're like, "No." Nah. And they kind of like the guy kind of looked down, like he was kind of like slacking or something. And then my lawyer, the judge, looked at my public defender, and he said, "Your Honor." As you can see, my client's white. Man, I almost fucking elbowed this guy. I thought, what the fuck? Like, this is a black judge. All these black people want to kill me every day. Like, what is this doing with this guy? He's trying to get me killed. Like, he's trying to, like, ruin my life, like, destroy my entire life. It took every ounce I had not to strangle this public defender. When I heard him say, Your Honor, as you can see, my client's white. Uh, he's, he's, and they said he's residing in an all-black prison or something like this and i was like oh my god and then <laughs> the judge said well if i let you something to the effect that if i let you go today will you come back for sentencing and i was like yes and then uh, i came back he let me go and then i came back two like two months later or something and then he said they said time served because i was white that's the only only reason why I didn't get like 15 years or something. It's just a, it's just a racist system. It's just a totally racist system. It's like black cops will like shoot black people. Black black cops, brown cops, all all different people will kill all all different uh, uh, people. That's not white. First, shoot first, ask questions later. It's just racist. It's a totally racist system. At least it, it was back then, and I, it don't seem like it's any better. It probably seems like it's worse now with the with the private prisons and stuff. How do you think your time in prison 
overall affected your worldview or, or just view of humanity? Well, it made me not homophobic because uh, before I went to prison, I was like a like a bad person, like a like a terrible person. I didn't like. I was like a homophobic, like I didn't believe like everybody was like equal and stuff, you know, I wasn't like racist, but I was like definitely homophobic. And I was like, well, this, you know, I just was, I I don't know if my mom didn't raise me that way. I don't know what put those type of homophobic ideas in my head, but I was real homophobic. And then when I was in prison, it's like, shit, so many gay people in there. And they were just like regular people. And I was like, holy fuck, this is like way different than what I ever thought, you know? Like you could talk to a gay person and it wasn't like threatening, you know what I mean? And so I was like totally, totally changed my perspective about that. And, um, uh, well, I didn't, I didn't get raped or nothing like that, but it was just like they're regular, they're all, I don't know how to explain it. It was just like, introduction i guess i never really knew a gay person or something i was real young too i just turned 21 and uh, didn't have like any gay friends that i knew of or anything but i always was just you know like saying you know the f word and stuff like that just like being a like dickhead type person but then like when in prison it's like oh shit you someone called that person the f word they got the shit knocked until they shit their pants, you know? It's like... <laughs> um, one thing I've thought about a bit, just wondering, uh, like, what vi- value you find, if any, in living outside of the major U.S. cultural centers, uh, you know, aside from the reduced cost of living, um, is a sort of, like, self-imposed exile. Would you say that's important for what you're doing? It's all economics. I would live where there's more... It's all about economics, but if I... but. That's another reason why I'm into the sensory experiments type of stuff, because it doesn't cost anything to be blind for a month. It doesn't cost anything to be deaf for a month or take ice baths and stuff like that. You can do all this. You can go inside the body. Yeah, experiment inside the body with your senses. It's not like you don't need materials for that. Poverty makes creativity. Well, yeah, but I think that's because of the restrictions that are imposed on the people that's like the rules it's like breaking the rules like there's rules put on the people and then you don't have that's like an economic rule basically that they're fighting against that they they have to make you have to make stuff with what you have if you don't have anything so it forces you to be outside of the box it forces you to be creative do you still sleep with a tape recorder uh no because i don't have carpet and uh, i've got i've got a tape recorder that's still functional but the this exact same model but i had the one that i was using uh for my dreams it fell on the floor and then stopped working and it's a real problem with these uh sony is it the tvc 200 or something. Yeah, it was called Sony TCM 200. If you drop it on the floor, it's broke. And they're like hundreds of dollars now on eBay. Some of them are like $500. You can get used ones, but then you can, if you get a used one for 50 bucks, you hear the motor in the back going, the whole time. Yeah, that might not. That might be a little disruptive while you're sleeping. But I worked a lot of that stuff out. I did the sleep stuff because I had nightmares. And I wanted to wake up in the morning and 
try to remember as much details as possible. And so I started sleeping with the tape recorder because it was faster. It was easier to like verbally describe what was happening and what had happened in my dreams than trying to like find the pencil and look, open my eyes and write it down and stuff like that. But then I would fall asleep while I was recording sometimes. And then I got obsessed with it and would wake up after each dream, like four times a night or whatever, and record my dreams. But then I was doing it because I was having like terrible nightmares and like trying to like find out what was going on because most of the time I'd wake up and not remember any of it. But then after like a few years of doing this, uh, it kind of like got out of my system. Like it worked itself out. I never really got like a, bunch of epiphanies or nothing but i didn't have the problem anymore now i very rarely uh, have any type of disturbed sleep or disturbed dreams i did have a a question um about uh the sort of i was just wondering what the genesis of your collaboration and friendship with uh zev was and just kind of wondering like how you all met and and uh what he meant to you oh man he was so cool, man. Yeah, he was so incredibly cool. Like, I could email him any idea I had, and he would just be, like, really supportive and, like, super genius and, like, super inspiring on what to do about it or, like, wanting to help with it or, like, anything like that. When I was deaf... Uh, when I did the deaf month, I called it the third ear experiment because I could still hear. I tried to be deaf for a month, but I could still keep hearing. So I like, I called it the third ear experiment. But I emailed Zev and was telling him what was going on. And um, I felt like I could breathe sound. It came to a point like about maybe between two, between week two and three, I felt like I could open my mouth breathe in the sound and then use my tongue to block it kind of like a trumpet to block the sound from coming in and then i could exhale the sound like i could feel this pressure i believe this is what i believe but i was hallucinating too uh, a lot i believe that i could that the sound had like some type of matter to it and i could like feel it when i was coming in when i was inhaling it and then i would block it with my tongue and then exhale it through my nose but i felt like well if i kept doing it it would like build up this pressure like these pressure waves inside my chest and then it would come to a point where it would just like this pressure would rupture maybe it was kind of like a hyperventilation or a hyper hypoventilation or something and uh my i felt like some tingly or something from some physiological process i don't know about but i was like oh man it like feels like i'm breathing sound once it got to that point it felt like i could keep doing it and then i was actually breathing sound and that it was like going into my organs and my like through my bloodstream and into my organs and then i emailed zeb to uh, tell him about it and then boom he made an album just for me to inhale No one's ever heard it before. It's only made to be breathed. That's how cool he was. Yeah. And and another, right before he died, I discovered this. I was trying to think of a way to, um, uh, what do you call it? 
a way to categorize thoughts so that you could transfer them to other people without like talking. I don't know how to, there's a word for that probably where people can like think other people's thoughts or something. Like thought transference or telepathy? Thought transference. This is what I was trying to do without verbal or physical uh, like body movements or hand gestures or like vocaliz vocalizations or something. I thought, well, if you can code, make a code for thoughts, like a very simple, basic code for thoughts, and then transfer that code to music, to sound, you could really quickly, as you're thinking, make those sounds or something so that other people can... They can experience your thoughts. But I was like, well, there's a lot of information in thoughts, so it has to be very, very simple, this code. And so I was like, okay, if you break thoughts down, there's only nine kinds of thoughts. There's three different, actually, there's only three different kinds of thoughts. There's identification thoughts, there's evaluation thoughts, and then there's judgment thoughts which is kind of like all probably one thought on the spectrum of like knowing and not knowing or something. But you, but most of the way we categorize everything is into this evaluation, identification, and judgment. And so I was like, but each of those three types of thoughts can take place in three different time zones in the past, present, and future. So there's actually nine kinds of thoughts. There's like past identification, past evaluation, past judgment, present identification, present evaluation, present judgment. And then there's future identification, future evaluation, and future judgments. So I was like, well, there's so there's nine kinds of thoughts. So you need a scale that's nine thing. It's like nine note scale or something. So I emailed Zev and I was like, oh man, is there some type of musical system that has nine notes? So then if someone knew that scale and which note was what, they could play the other person's thoughts or they could understand what the person's thoughts were and they could communicate like where in the brain they were. And then as technology advances or whatever, you could expand on it and get better at it or whatever. But then he like emailed me back and he was like, well, this is not something I'm interested in at all. <laughs> he <was> like, <laughs> he's, 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 <laughs> he's like, I'm just a fucking percussionist. <laughs> I just hit a fucking drum well, and well, some no, bones. No, he was like, oh, this is really interesting and everything. But he was like, no, he's like, you're, he's like, you're thinking with this part of your brain and there's something with, he's like, but in order to be a good artist, you got to use both parts of your brain. I'm really like paraphrasing or whatever, like simplifying what he was saying, but he was like, you've got to use both parts of your brain and this is only one part or something. He was like, you need to ask John Duncan about it. He's like, this is like something John Duncan would be into or something. And then, oh, man, then he died like right after that. That's too bad. I, I think I could have convinced him. I think I could have like written him back or something and then explained it somehow i could have like looked into both sides of the brain more and then thought like made it some way that he would be i mean he would be perfect for it because he just had that type of um genius that knowledge genius or something artistic genius to like make the man one time he did this he, he sent me a tape one time he did a performance in san francisco probably in the 70s 
And what he did was he recorded like, um, oh man, a field recording. Basically, he made a field recording of where he was going to play at a week later. So he knew he's going to play on a certain Friday at a certain place. So he went to that place the Friday before and he did a field recording of like the traffic and the people walking on the sidewalk and stuff outside of the venue. Then at the same exact time, like say there was youth playing nine o'clock on Friday, he did the same thing at nine o'clock the Friday before. Then the nine o'clock when he when he came to perform, he had the speakers placed uh, where the microphones were and had the people sitting backwards outside facing where the microphones were. So their backs were to the sidewalk and the traffic. So the audience that showed up for his show was experiencing the sounds of the week before mixed with the sounds of that week. So people didn't know if the people walking behind them were like real or if they were like, or the cars stopping and going by real fast or whatever were like real or if they were like, like he totally was like bending time to those people using sound. Oh man, that guy was a genius. Brian, thank you so much for um, doing this. Let me know if you're coming down this way anytime and uh, I'll do the same if I'm I'm heading up there. All right, right, cool, man. Hey, thank you, Brian. It was so nice to meet you. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Have a wonderful night. Take care, buddy. You too. Okay, bye. The guy does a lot of different stuff and really does resist. I mean, there. I, I think he was working entirely in private and didn't have any, maybe other than a f- few friends and family members, uh, he wasn't showing this stuff to anybody. And at some point, things kind of shifted where he, he felt this was worth showing to other people. And certainly once the, the drug portraits got out there, this went viral in several waves over over a span of a number of years. And the idea of that being the sort of, what do you say, the, the gateway drug, the uh, under the influence series, the, the drug portraits were became the gateway drug into all these other things. But but being doing all the all these different things where you you defy categorization or resist categorization um, and not doing it out of any motivation towards monetizing it or marketing it i mean he 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 gives well he does not do the performance stuff as much anymore but he gives gives talks and um does some exhibitions but he's he's not really obviously not living high on the hog and he could sell all all this stuff and probably make him a good amount of money but that's that's not what he's about uh it resists this this sort of uh marketplace yeah well it's just interesting that he um his his struggle as far as uh the mark like the marketing of it or anything and having no desire to do it and then wanting wanting to just do his own thing um you know i brought it up briefly and i i wished i could have like went into it more because i I think about it a lot is you you are uh now now people just care about the artist they don't care about the art um so if if you really are a cult of personality yeah if you're trying to work within all these separate mediums um it's not playing into the lore that can be commodified and sold. So 
people aren't going to pay as much attention to it as probably the actual art itself deserves just because uh, they're not getting, you know, they're not seeing this like con- this line shared like uh, a lot of people per- like if Brian had opted to just continue to do drug portraits forever like who knows maybe he would be Damien Hurst right but it's like this thing whether he's doing it intentionally or not I mean I think he just uh, uh, I'll say a big takeaway for me is that um, he's almost compulsively honest and uh, he's a person that is a true individual and doesn't um, fit the the image of the artist you know what i mean like people uh have in their minds what what the artist is supposed to look like how they're supposed to ha- behave how they're supposed to talk and uh he isn't really any of those things i mean people would call him an eccentric or maybe kind of uh, weird i mean i think he sees himself as being that way i think uh, people would lump him into the whole folk art concept right outsider artist visionary artist yeah and i don't think any of those terms i i i, I honestly i find the terms like outsider artist or folk artist to be stupid yeah it's, there's a lot of bullshit with that it's another um sort of like yeah the the outsider dollar it's like another marketing tragedy uh strategy that's a marketing that's, tragedy <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> more like it. But yeah, this is this has become like really fashionable as as uh. I was reading an interview. I, I'm sure you read it as well. The Vice, like, did you read the interview with the Vice that he had? I think yeah, I did. I did read that. Um, one. the guy writing it described him as like the real life version of uh, Gummo or like Xena, Ohio. Sure. Right. Yeah, that plays right into that. I felt like, uh, once again, that's some like tourist shit, you know? It's like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm a New York writer for Vice. I'm going to, I'm going to say this is the real life gummo. That's a good way for people to understand what I'm talking about. Let's reduce it to this. Um, but at this, at the same time, like I'm, I'm not, whoever that writer was, I'm I'm not judging the guy because that that is an easy way to quickly communicate this guy's story. <laughs> He's like, who the fuck sees a bloated body on the beach at six years old? <laughs> I, yeah, and then Christ. and then can process that in some way through the, their their own system and their own work to be able to to sort of like deal with it or come out come out untraumatized ultimately well this has been the another episode of the exile hour uh, thanks for joining us here i'm evan philip lipson i'm caleb jackson dills um have a wonderful evening thank you for listening to the exile hour please tune the next episode for another very special guest we appreciate your patronage if you have any suggestions for future guests, hate mail, blackmail, or any other type of message, please do not hesitate to write to the Exile Hour at ProtonMail.com. As always, be safe, be vigilant, and keep listening.